What up, family? Welcome to episode 99 of The Genius Life. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 99 of The Genius Life. This is a bonus episode being put out Monday, uh, March 30th, and... The focus of the next hour and 15 minutes is going to be uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And I welcome Dr. Molly Malouf, MD, who is a San Francisco-based physician, a good friend of mine, and a previous guest on The Genius Life, uh, to come on to talk about some of her research and the current state of affairs as it pertains to SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus that um, causes the COVID-19 disease, which we are now in the midst of a pandemic of. And over the course of the next hour and 15 minutes, we cover, we sort of ping pong between a number of different um, topics related to the virus uh, and the disease and the pandemic and ways to stay safe and comorbidities and whatnot. I also ask um, Dr. Malouf some questions that you have submitted uh, via the text message community. Um, you guys can text me at any time to 310-299-9401. And on Instagram, I polled some of my followers uh, and implored them to text me the burning questions that they had about SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 disease, um, and uh, and anything else per- pertaining to this pandemic. So as always, we keep it fairly high level. We keep it actionable. We keep it... Um, you know, approachable. And I think Dr. Malouf, she's such a great communicator uh, that you guys are really going to enjoy and uh, derive a lot of really good information from this chat. Now, while you guys are uh, no doubt physically distancing yourselves from the outside world, uh, staying stocked up with healthy goodies and snacks and um, things to eat is crucially important. And so for that, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, Navitas Organics. Navitas makes a line of super delicious, super healthy, um, shelf-stable, and that's uh, kind of key these days, I think, um, dried berries and cacao powders and cacao nibs and things like that. Uh, I love their golden berries, their goji berries. I use their cacao and their cacao nibs uh, all the time. You guys know that I'm a big dark chocolate fan. Um, And they make a number of really great products. If you want to give anything that they uh, sell a try, all you got to do is go to navitasorganics.com, N-A-V-I-T-A-S, organics.com, slash genius, or just use promo code genius, and you'll get to save 30% off of anything in their online store. They also sell a bunch of great nut products as well, forgot to mention, um, like their uh, turmeric tamari coated almonds, which are sugar-free and super tasty, loaded with uh, healthy fats. Yeah, I'm a huge fan, and now is the perfect time to stock up on anything that Navitas Organics uh, makes. Again, they're all going to be shelf-stable. They also have a number of immune-supporting products, uh, and, you know, they have... They can support keto diets um, with their stuff. They You can shop by diet. So you can go to keto-friendly, you can go to paleo-friendly, you can go to plant-based slash vegan. Um, so I'm a big fan of their stuff and grateful that they've come on to sponsor the podcast. And again, stock up because, uh, you know, we're spending a lot more time in the house. Having those healthy snacks that are going to support your immune system, I think, is crucial. NavitasOrganics.com slash genius or promo code genius, and you'll get to save 30% off, and, which, you know, that's significant cheddar. All right, guys, we're just seconds away from this epic bonus COVID-19 focused chat with Dr. Molly Malouf, MD. Before we get to that, I want to give a warm shout out 
to JK101, who left a super warm and glowing review for The Genius Life on iTunes. He wrote, my name is Jaden and I am 17 years old. Way to go, Jaden. I picked up Genius Foods last month. I also have pre-ordered The Genius Life and I believe the book should be prescribed to all high school and college students. I've noticed social and cultural trends in my generation that glorifies pizza and donuts. People reach to these foods to celebrate or to de-stress. The book reveals the ugly truth about these foods and provides a fix for that. Back to the podcast. I love how Max tackles a spectrum of topics and his openness to invite all perspectives to the table. I reread parts of Genius Foods and time into new episodes of the pod, tune into new episodes of the podcast every week, I guess. Jaden means. I'd like to thank Max for making me more conscious and aware. I wholeheartedly recommend this podcast. Well, thank you so much, Jaden. And I love that you're 17. Dude, uh, keep up the amazing work. And um, I don't know you personally, but I'm assuming that you are a light uh, and an example for all of your peers. So just keep it up. And thank you so much for leaving that review and helping spread the word about the genius life. I appreciate all of you guys who've taken the time to leave that rating, leave that review, and to uh, post the screen grab up on Instagram to spread the word about what we're doing with your tribe. Um, It means the world to me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Dr. Maloof. Let's go. Molly Maloof, welcome back to The Genius Life. Hey, Max, how are you? I'm good. I mean, all things considering, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm definitely excited to have this uh, behind us already, but I'm excited to talk with you about COVID-19 and the coronavirus because this is an area that you seemingly have done a pretty deep dive into as of late. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of unavoidable because you're yeah. just constantly getting emails and you know requests from patients and updates from labs and you name it i've been like just steadily over the last two weeks really just learning as much as i can although this has definitely been going on for longer than that but um yeah so it's an interesting time to be alive for sure i feel like it's a it's a historic moment i mean if if somebody's not making a documentary of this as we're living it that would be a huge missed opportunity because it's one of those times that i feel like we're going to look back and we're gonna be like i cannot believe that we lived through that Yeah, I know. It feels like we're a part of history right now. And for both of us as people who really care about health, I think this is also a particularly interesting time because to me, health, and if if people are going to hear me say this over and over again on every video that I ever do, but fundamentally, it's the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. And we've never been hit with this kind of adversity, socially, physically, environmentally, emotionally, you name it, it's like we are now testing our theories in real time of whether we are as healthy as a country, as a community, as an individual, as we think we are. It really is a test. It reminds me of, um, there's a great Game of Thrones line, one of the great lines from the Game of Thrones series, where they're talking about chaos and uh, Varys, who is sort of like a spy in the kingdom. Uh, he says, you know, chaos what are we without the the lie that basically glues the seven kingdoms together? A, you know, chaos, a gaping pit waiting to <laughs> swallow us all. And then Peter Baelish goes, chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. And so I like, wow. I like that line a lot because it basically, it's just, a, it's a perspective shift. You know, I think a lot of people, I mean, if we were to look at the potential of a, you know, of a silver lining in all this, it's that, it's making people a lot more conscious of their health and um, getting a lot, you know, growing more comfortable with solitude and being alone physically, which I think, uh, you know, has value. Um, mm-hmm. 
and it's really yeah. yeah it's it's doing i mean it's doing a lot of bad things obviously but it's it's there is some there is a silver lining i think well you know someone said to me recently that in chinese crisis is composed of two characters and one represents danger and the other represents opportunity hmm. and so there was a moment where i was like definitely freaking out a few weeks ago and then i was like wait 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 this is actually a massive opportunity for humanity to examine itself and the way that we're living globally. And I mean, we're doing this all together at the same time. I don't think the world has ever had this kind of, I mean, maybe the last world war, but really the, to be a part of this massive global shift in consciousness and change and recognition, recognition of our mortality and also of our ability to be resilient in a time of crisis, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. So let's dive in. Like, what is, what is the difference between the coronavirus and the influenza virus at a high level? Like, why why I mean, now are we experiencing yeah. what what we seem to be experiencing? I mean, the, at a high level, um, this virus, you know, came from an, came from animals to humans. So we don't have immunity to it like we do with the flu. Like we've seen the flu. The flu comes around every year, and so a lot of us actually have some immunity to it. But unfortunately, with the coronavirus there's no opportunity to get immunity because it's a novel virus. So that means that when you get infected with it, you don't have this um, immune system that's like, oh, I've seen this, I know what to do. Your immune system says, oh, I don't know what's going on here. And you know, you don't have the ability to mount the same kind of response. So because of that, it spreads really, it's also, I mean, it's also just known to spread quite quickly. I think it was January that I saw this epidemiologist from Harvard on Twitter who was freaking out. And I thought he was a little bit like, there was one hand, part of me was like, maybe he's right. But part of me was like, maybe he's, you know, um, maybe he's like overreacting. But basically his, his thoughts were, you know, the rate of spread and the pace of how fast it spreads, that's what makes it particularly dangerous. Because if something spreads very quickly and a lot of people get sick at the same time, we just don't have the resources in our hospital systems to accommodate for that. And that's where people start panicking, right? Because if a hospital, like, like, for example, in New York right now, there are hospital workers wearing garbage bags because they ran out of personal protective equipment. And that's actually happening about Sinai. And then like in Spain, they ran out of bed. So they have to like that government's basically said, we're going to take over hotels because we need space. So like that is what makes this particularly scary is how fast it spreads, how contagious it is. And, you know, the death rate, the hardest part about this right now is knowing what's true and what's not true about numbers, because not everyone's getting tested so we don't actually know what the actual death rates are because not everyone who has sickness is getting a test. And so because we're just not prepared right now as a society for, you know, um, being able to identify everyone who's sick, being able to quarantine the specifically ill, everyone has to basically come together and say, we're all going to quarantine ourselves because that's going to be our best hope of slowing down the speed the rate of spread to not overwhelm the hospitals. And is that really the point of the self-quarantine to flatten the curve? Not so that everybody doesn't get it, because it's my understanding that unless a vaccine is developed, everybody's going to get it. But the point is that mortality is greatly exacerbated by the fact that the hospitals are at capacity. So as mm -hmm. if we can, because this is all happening at once. So if we can self-quarantine and slow the, mm -hmm. the transmission of the virus, then it's not that it's not that ultimately people aren't going to get it. It's just that the hospitals are going to be better equipped to be able to, to care for these patients and hopefully reduce that mortality. Um, exactly. Risk. Exactly. And like, you know, I was reading today in the wall street journal about doctors who are getting sick. And you have to remember that like, if you're in the hospital right now, your chances of getting ill are not, they're not low. <laughs> so 
we also want to protect our hospital workers and you know we need to have space for them to get help and we also need to have enough medicine to go around for everybody so you know i i can personally attest to the fact that i'm probably more prepared than the vast majority of people right now because i have the access and the resources to create my own home clinic but um most people you know hopefully if you're in a, if you're in a city that doesn't have too much of a burden you should be able to get care but in some places it's getting harder to do that so you know to me it's um it kind of is an unfortunate reflection of the fact that our healthcare system has a lot of problems a lot of problems with coordination a lot of problems with getting labs to people a lot of problems with protecting people and because of that i kind of went out of my way to say okay well if i were to get sick what would i want what would i have in the hospital and so i went a little overboard i think but to me it feels like you know, um, only because I just, I didn't have a lot of help. I don't have a lot of faith in the healthcare system. And I hate to say that, but I've worked in the healthcare system and it's, um, you know, it, it, when, when you see a movie from the CDC directly, that's telling and teaching doctors how to take one ventilator and accommodate 10 people, that's a little scary, mm. <laughs> you know, that's a little concerning. So I think, you know, staying home and quarantining yourself is a great way to avoid getting sick, ideally. Yeah, it's a it's super important. So, how what steps have you taken in your day to day these days um, to to reduce your risk of getting sick? Well, I mean, the first thing is is I've been avoiding human contact aside from the grocery store and the market, just because to me, fresh fruits and vegetables and you know healthy sources of meat is like paramount for optimal health. So, like I've been basically avoiding crowds aside from, you know, going to get food. Um, the other thing I've been doing a lot of is just resting a lot. Like sleeping is one of the best things you can do for your immune system. So just really having a healthy circadian rhythm and then hydration, you know, I'm drinking tea right now. And one of the, you know, best substances we know for, um, improving health and, and in some research suggests that there is some, um, effects against the virus is, is green tea. So I've been drinking green tea throughout the day. One of the things people have said is, even if you get exposed, um, just like swallowing hot water can help move the virus down from the throat into the stomach rather than into the lungs. So I've also been, um, you know, like along with the, those things, I, I've also been, you know, engaging in hobbies like painting that is super relaxing and drawing. I've been cooking a lot because I personally love to cook, but I've been using this as an opportunity to, you know, enhance my skills in the kitchen. Um, and then I, I'm very, very fortunate. I have a, a gym in the garage here. So I've been working out every day and almost, I'd say every day, maybe six days a week. I think it's really important to get a day of rest in and a day off from exercise, but I've been getting a solid 45 to an hour of just, um, high intensity interval training for about 20 minutes. And then I try to get around 40 minutes of weightlifting in, and then I've been doing some yoga from, you know, online streaming, which has been cool. And then, um, you know, getting to work every day, go, getting up and pretending like today's a work day. And so go, getting up, getting ready, getting dressed, not really, I really find that I'm more productive if I feel like I'm going to work versus if I feel like I'm in my pajamas and I'm like not, not taking care of myself. So I've just been taking, you know, nice long hot showers and just um, loading my body with phytonutrients and taking a bunch of supplements. That makes sense. Um, originally, I think the reports were coming out saying that if you're young and healthy, that there's really not, it's not such a huge risk to you from a morbidity and especially mortality standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, has that has that thinking 
changed? Because I, I've heard that there are now reports coming out saying that young people are increasingly showing up to um, ERs and requiring ventilators and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, define healthy, right? So I think the vast majority of people who think that they're healthy uh, in America are actually not that healthy. Hmm. Like most, I, I see young people all the time with sallow skin, no brightness, no shiny hair, very dull appearance. Like they're not emitting this this picture of health. They, they think that they're healthy because they don't get sick very often, but that doesn't mean you're healthy. And a lot of people don't even get labs regularly. So they have no idea what their blood does. So to me, it's it's just like there's this false idea that if you're young, you're healthy. And a lot of people in America, frankly, aren't. A lot of people eat terrible diets. A lot of people don't exercise. A lot of people, you know, have terrible stress management skills. And so it's like you're hitting them with a challenge and their bodies may not be able to withstand that. As far as I can tell in France and, and Italy, there's quite a lot of young people getting sick. And part of that's probably the rate of smoking in those countries, hmm. um, which, you know, certainly affects your lungs because your you know, immune system and your lungs can't mount the same response if, they're, if the cilia in your lungs are paralyzed. So there's a lot of false beliefs around health in in the world. And there's a lot of young people who are overweight and obese in America who eat packaged processed foods. Like the funny thing about the grocery stores is that there's so much healthy food there and there's so little packaged processed stuff left. And I'm just like, why are, why are there so many vegetables? Why are people (laughs) buying vegetables? Like what are people eating at home? And I, you know, I'm seeing recipes online for sweet potato, you know, casserole, Ritz crackers topping. And I'm just like, okay, refined carbs on carbs with probably some sugar in that recipe like that's not healthy so i don't know like i think that this is a test of health right like how what happens to you when you get sick what how quickly you recover whether it's a self-limited illness or whether you require hospitalization like we won't really know and there's also just a lot we don't know about the disease itself we don't really know that much about the virus so it's very possible that there are some people that are more um, more likely to get affected than others just due to g- genetic variants of immune system strength. So it's a big question mark whether or not um, young people are more or less susceptible. But it does seem like the numbers in terms of the, the what we know about the death rates, that the people that are likely the most at risk are the homeless, the incarcerated, and the um, elderly in nursing homes. Because we know these people don't have the same kind of resources physically that people who don't have don't don't live in these situations have so you know people who live in cells people who live in hospital rooms people who live in environments that are just not conducive to optimal health are obviously going to be most hard hard hit got it so no matter what age really you should be thinking about how to um how to get healthier i mean really it seems that comorbidities really is are the number one uh you know i guess most uh you know, in most damning, um, mm-hmm. overlapping, you know, health feature that you can have if you, you know, for poor, for a poor outcome with this condition. Right. Well, so that's the thing. I don't think a lot of people totally understand what comorbidities even mean. So I'm going to clarify this a second because I have a different perspective than the average person. So when people think of comorbidities, they think of high blood pressure, high, you know, blood glucose, they think of diabetes, they think of Um, dementia, they think of heart disease, cancer, things like that, right? But when I look at a person who has any of these symptoms or any of these signs or any of these conditions, it's an organism that isn't adapting to its environment, that is breaking down its ability to maintain homeostasis. So when your body shifts your numbers from normal blood pressure and normal blood glucose 
to high blood pressure and high blood glucose, that means your body can no, no longer maintain its ability to keep your numbers in the normal range. So it's almost like the house is starting to show signs of wear and tear, and those signs of wear and tear are weaknesses in the system. So another thing people don't realize is that there's a lot of people out there who have just low energy, who, who are regularly fatigued. And that means that they have low bioenergetic capacity. That means that they don't have enough energy to maintain the integrity of their structure and to do normal housekeeping tasks in the body. So that means that like, if you, for example, are dropping your energy capacity beyond like below 50%, imagine if your house lost 50% of its power and would your alarm systems work? Well, your immune, your immune system in your body is your alarm system and your innate immune system has a lot of crosstalk with the mitochondrial um, energy systems in the body. So if you're not producing enough energy, you're not gonna be able to main, um, maintain or mount the same kind of immune response that somebody who has a high bioenergetic capacity has. So to me, it's a different way of thinking about the body than the average person. It's not about billing and coding for disease. It's about, is this organism adapting and self-managing with the, the lifestyle that they're living in the environment that they're, that they're living? That makes sense. And it reminds me of that figure that was published just a couple months ago, um, stating that only about 12% of people in the U.S. have, quote unquote, good metabolic health when looking at um, biomarkers like HDL, LDL, waist mm -hmm. circumference and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the absence of uh, disease that equals health. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of people with um, with insulin resistance that don't even know it. If you're an adult and you're getting regular breakouts, and I'm talking acne, you probably are partially insulin resistant. If you're noticing as you're getting older, you're getting a lot more wrinkles, you're partially probably insulin resistant because a lot of people don't realize that these conditions, like when your skin is really wrinkly and when your skin has lots of acne, it usually is indic indicative of high insulin. And usually that's from a diet that's really high in refined carbs and sugar. So I've even seen this in young vegans. I, I hung out with a lot of young vegan girls this summer, or sorry, not this summer, I was in Maui for three months on a sabbatical. And I was working um, and I was meeting all these young, young people from college and they all had serious breakouts. And I mean, this isn't the teenage years anymore. These are like early 20s people. And they're just, they're just downing the carbs. I'm talking all the rice, all the bread, all the flour, and their skin is breaking out and you know that's a high insulin state. So that is, if you, if you have a high, high blood sugar and high insulin states, and you can't see this unless you wear a glucose monitor or you're testing your blood sugar, but if you have that, you're basically providing any sort of organism free money, basically. Like blood sugar, high blood sugar is like all the energy a bug needs to grow. And so, you know, to me, one of the best things you can do is maintain a really nice and low, um, healthy blood sugar range, postprandial blood sugars that aren't spiking, and a fasting blood sugar that isn't like upper 90s, which is a lot of people have and think that they're perfectly healthy because their doctor says they're not pre-diabetic, but you actually measure their insulin levels and they're higher than they should be. So there's a lot that we can be doing that we're not doing because just it's education. People don't know these things. And fortunately for people like you and I that are writing books and publishing on these topics, like I'm getting messages from people who said, you know, I'm so glad that you and Max are doing this podcast because everything I've learned from following you guys has made me so much healthier and so much happier and so much more resilient. And like, I know you get messages like this every day, but the truth is, is that you really do need to be investing in your health when you're young, if you want to have a strong immune system when you're older, and if you want to maintain your health and your youth as you age. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, this might, I don't know if this is, this question is necessarily in your wheelhouse, but like, I'm just curious. What, like, I understand from an evolutionary standpoint what a bacterium might want mm-hmm. to achieve, right? To survive mm-hmm. and to spread. Mm-hmm. What, what does a virus, yeah. what does a virus want from an oh, evolutionary yeah. standpoint? So viruses are so cool. So I'm just going to start with, uh, somebody asked me like two years ago, like, what do you think we should, we should be researching that we don't know enough about? And the first thing I said was viruses, because everyone had spent all this time studying the microbiome and, the, and you know, the mycobiome. So the, the microbiome of, of bacteria and the yeast, we've learned so much about these things. But I was like, well, we're, what about the microbiome? Like, what about all the viral load that we're carrying that we may not know about? And so funnily enough, I started seeing patients with chronic fatigue. And I discovered through this Dr. Amy Myhill in England, who wrote this amazing book on chronic fatigue, that viruses and, vi- and, and viral infections are often invisible because we don't check for them. So if you actually think about viruses and what they, what they are, they're not actually living organisms because according to the definitions that the scientific community considers to be alive, you have to be able to make your own energy. But the thing about viruses is viruses hijack your energy systems. They get inside the cell. So they're intracellular organisms that go inside and then they hijack your, 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 um, you know, your basically the systems that can translate DNA and they start using your machinery to make their own viral capsids, to make their own, to reproduce their own um, DNA and to make energy. So they're like, they're parasites in a way, right? They take, they take advantage of your body's systems to thrive and to reproduce and multiply and to be spread on. So it's crazy. If you really think about this, it's like a zombie apocalypse, <laughs> you know? It really is. I mean, in, in The Walking Dead, it's a, it's a virus that infects the brain, but I just don't understand, like, what is the MO of a virus then? Like, why does it, ju- does it just- They wanna pass on, just like anything else in life, they wanna pass on their genes. They wanna reproduce. Like the, the thing about life that most people don't realize is that any body, anything that's like, anything that is that is like you know in nature generally wants to pass on its genes and it wants to survive so viruses are no different they want to pass on their genes and they want to survive and so the craziest thing about viruses is that they can embed their genes into your dna Hmm. it's crazy and so a lot of us are actually carrying viral dna in our bodies without even knowing it Um, and this is part of the scary thing about viruses is that they, they can contribute to cancer so in people with aids they end up getting this thing called kaposi sarcoma and it's definitely related to this thing called, I think called the JC virus. And basically it's a type of cancer that when, when AIDS started breaking out in like the eighties, all these pathologists in New York were like seeing these weird tumors growing on people. And these people were getting dropped off at the hospital with like no explanation. And I remember talking to this pathologist when I was in medical school who told me, yeah, when I was in med school, you guys think you have it so easy. We were in med school. We were having to like do autopsies on AIDS cases with Kaposi sarcoma because we didn't know what we were dealing with. They were calling the CDC being like, hey, what's going on here? Like we are seeing this weird condition and they had no idea that it was actually due to AIDS that was causing these people to have impaired immunity and develop other viral infections. So, um, you know, in another, in, in the case of people with chronic fatigue, what I notice as I go get them tested for what's called herpes viruses, and there's about eight of them, I believe. And I often see multiple forms of herpes viruses in people with chronic fatigue. So it's really, really fascinating that this has not gotten more attention and that so many doctors think chronic fatigue is psychosomatic when really it's actually a person doesn't have the, the immune system and the, and the energy capacity to fight off these infections. So they stay indolent and they, they sort of slowly 
um, affect this person on a cellular level and they, they drain your energy. It's, it's crazy when you really think about it, that we don't know more about these things. Yeah, it is. It's so insane. I want to take a question now from the audience. So I polled uh, my followers and I had them text me via my, uh, my text community number, which anybody can send a text to at any time. The number is 310-299-9401. And some of the que- one of the questions that I got was from Co- Cody from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he asks, I understand that the infection rate of COVID is rather dramatic, but is the lethality of the disease being blown out of proportion a little bit? I mean, 11 million people will die from processed food this year. COVID won't kill a fraction of that. So the question is, yeah. is, is the lethality being uh, blown out of proportion? Well, I think you have to remember, this is a really complex thing to even be thinking about. So if you think about, um, if you think about death rates, right? Like why would someone die from COVID? And a lot of times it's because they're in, an, they're in a community that doesn't have the resources or the ventilators to be able to keep that person alive. And so um, that is part of the problem is that the, if you actually look at the numbers in different cities in Italy, different cities have different death rates because different cities have different numbers of people who are infected and different resources for treating those who are really sick. Hmm. So I think it's actually really tough to get the actual numbers right now. Also, because there are a lot of people who are sick and don't have the testing available and their communities to know if they have the disease. Like, for example, I got a call from a friend who's friends with the CEO of a nursing home in New York, and he said, we can't get tests right now, and we've got an outbreak, and we don't know who's sick and who's not sick, and we don't know who to move where. And so I got him connected to my lab, and now they have like, you know, 50 kids going to that nursing home. So it's actually a problem right now of not knowing the actual numbers. Um, and that's why we don't truly know if it's worse or better than it actually is. And so I think in, as far as I've also been told in China, I've been told that there's areas that they, they just stopped testing people because there was just so many people who were getting sick that they just figured, all right, well, we, we, we can't possibly test everybody. So that's another issue is that a lot of people aren't getting tested. So yes, I mean, I think if we assume the lethality is high, that's gonna give us the best chance of not letting as many people die. But when this first all started happening, the first thing I said to myself was, is okay, like I've been weirdly enough, like I was like about six months prior to this, this, this outbreak, I was like, you know, we've had fires, we've had floods. I think it's probably time for a plague. And I was kind of joking about it with friends, but it actually isn't surprising to me that we have this, this, this happening right now. Like this is what, this is humans have been exposed to plagues since the beginning of time. So like, this is not necessarily something we should not be expecting, but in terms of um, the problem right now that we're dealing with is just, we, there's a lot of, um, it's actually really, t- it's hard to know how many people are dying right now because reporting is, is you know, sporadic. I've seen websites that random people have put up for reporting and you don't really even know if these are legitimate websites that are are, are sending data to public health departments. Um, so I, I it seems like the, the numbers we have indicated is more deadly than the flu. Um, but let's keep in mind that 150,000 people have died from the flu in America in the last year, and that's not a small number, right? So like, if you wanna compare, you know, infections to um, chronic diseases, by far the things that you're gonna likely die from in America are heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, and dementia, right? Like these are things that are actually much more deadly than a virus. But the thing is, is that because viruses um, are unpredictable and happen fast, there's this um, psychological response to viruses that seems scarier 
than something that's slow moving. And I've been saying this for a while because I'm like, look, we are dealing with a zombie apocalypse of a diabetes. There are literally people walking around that have lost their eyesight. They have lost their ability to feel their, their limbs. They have, they're losing limbs. And because it's a slow moving disease, nobody bats an eyelash. And to me, it's just a, it's a, it's a reflection of where our priorities, unfortunately, um, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't really see slow moving things the way we see fast moving things. And so I think it's just, um, I think it's realistically like this whole outbreak should be taken as an opportunity for everyone to look at their lifestyle, for everyone to look at how they are living and how that's contributing to their chances of getting diseases. Because it's very, very possible to live a very long and healthy life without chronic disease. And people who live past 100, if you actually look at what they die from, they die from the same diseases everyone else dies from. They just get them a lot later in life. So like, to me, the real travesty of our country is that we don't seem to care about slow moving diseases that kill millions of people. And we freak out when there's a virus that, you know, is likely going to cause what's what I'm predicting as a double flu. So I think if we I think if we're conservative, it would be not surprising to see, you know, instead of 150,000 people die, 300,000 people die. But there is concern in some authorities that it would be like two million if we didn't stop people from moving around. So I am not anticipating it's going to be two million people. I think it's going to be a lot less than that. So it's basically, I mean, is the so I've heard some economists talk about the fact that like the the ultimate way of stopping or not not stopping but making this a more manageable um, outbreak would be to take a ripping the bandaid off approach where everybody basically gets quarantined for everybody at a at a federal level mm-hmm. for thirty days. Mm-hmm. And then it just slows the rate so that we may all get coronavirus, but then you'll, mm-hmm. but, but then you'll be able to show up to the emergency room um, and have resources available to you that can dramatically uh, potentially reduce the risk of, of mortality. And so it's sort of like yeah. the flu in that in that situation. Like the flu yeah. is not affecting everybody all at once every single year. It's slow. It's no. staggered. And so we have, mm-hmm. I mean, it still kills a significant amount of people, obviously, but we at least have the resources to deal with it at its current, you know, rate of, of transmission. Right. Exactly. You nailed it right there. Um, all right. So I want to take another question. Uh, this one comes from Michelle from Holland, PA. Um, and mm-hmm. she asks, how do I go to the grocery store safely? Well... To me, the first step is if you're really worried about getting the infection at the grocery store, bring gloves. And if you really must, you can also wear a mask, although there's a lot of um, controversy around masks if you're not sick. But if you, because like a lot of people think that if you wear masks, you're actually more likely to touch your face. Um, Another thing is just bring your own hand sanitizer and make sure that you have it because they may not have it at the store. Um, If you wanted to, you know, if you really want to be extra careful, you can bring um, you know, you, you can bring something to wipe down the, the carts. But uh, the other thing that you can do is you can wash your vegetables when you get home. You should already be washing your vegetables anyway. Like I made the mistake in Maui. I went to the market. I came home. I washed half my vegetables, but then I ended up getting distracted on a phone call and I forgot to wash the other half and I ended up getting a parasite. So I think it's really important whether or not the viral outbreak is happening to wash your vegetables now that that happened to me. Um, fortunately it only took me one dose of, uh, anti- antiparasitic to get rid of the bug, but it, it really reminded me of, oh yeah, we should just be doing this like all the time. So just grab some water, um, you know, use a salad spinner. If you want to add some apple cider vinegar, that can help. 
um, or even just buy some salad wash on Amazon, but wash your vegetables. Um, you know, like really, I, I mean, I have to admit, like, I love going to the grocery store. So I personally have like a really enjoyable time there, but keep in mind that like the food there may have been touched by somebody who's infected. So it's not unlikely that it's, you know, possible. It's definitely possible to pick up the bug there. And there's a lot of people saying that in fact, grocery stores are probably a good site to get the bug, but you know, just, just wash your hands before and after do your very best. Um, but don't, don't completely end your like typical normal day to day life just because you're in a quarantine. Like you got to eat, you got to live. Um, and also you just got to maintain a positive attitude because actually living in fear does, does increase the stress response in the body and the stress response in the body actually has, um, physiologic effects. So there's this concept called mitochondrial allostatic load. And that means it's basically the total burden of stress on the mitochondria that's using up the energy that you've got. And so like when I go to the grocery store, I enter with like a really positive attitude and I don't walk around like afraid of people. I keep my distance, but I just try to maintain, you know, like a normal sense of, of life with some extra precautions that I think are, are normal and necessary. Um, so that's what I've been doing. And then like, I personally really loved going to the farmer's market because there wasn't that many people there. You could keep your distance. Everyone was keeping six feet away from each other. And to me, fresh fruits and vegetables are like absolutely the best, most wonderful thing to have during the quarantine. So, you know, don't just go and eat a bunch of packaged processed crap. Like that's what I see most people doing. And it's just like, I don't think they realize that they're harming their immune systems by, by loading their bodies with sugar and chips and candy. It's like, that's not how you fight the virus people. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's also, I think, important to remind people that as far as we know, um, the virus is not airborne. You know, it can be spread yeah. via droplets when you're yep. around somebody who is coughing or sneezing. Um, and it can become aerosolized for a short period of time, but then it ends up falling to the floor. Uh, right. But it's not it's not airborne. So it's not like if you're if you're at walking around the supermarket and you're not in the close proximity of somebody who has just coughed or sneezed, then you're yep. going to be fine provided you w don't touch your hands between the time that you are navigating the supermarket and touching objects on the shelves and wash your and you know and and wash your hands. So you got to wash your hands, but it's not an airborne virus. Yep. Exactly. And here's the thing. I mean, I we haven't touched on this yet, but um like you don't need to go to the store as often as you think you do. And so one of the strategies that I've been doing is, is um, grocery shopping once a week and basically intermittent fasting for a lot of meals. And I've also been doing this thing called protein cycling. And so what both of these things do is they turn down certain systems in your cells that actually can um, promote health span. So like when you turn down mTOR and you turn down, um, you know, the carbohydrate metabolism system, the insulin-like growth factor system, you're actually enhancing your health span because you're, you're turning down growth. And so the balance, like one of the, the sort of secrets of aging well is to balance growth with um, maintenance and repair. So I've been doing intermittent fasting, I'd say about four days a week on average right now. I've noticed that there are some days where I wake up and I just feel like having some food. But um, generally speaking, I've been doing intermittent fasting like 16-8 or sometimes Sometimes 18 hours, sometimes 14 hours, but really trying to not 
um, eat as much because I'm not moving as much. So it's like, why are, why, why are you just, I mean, a lot of people are just sitting around eating all day long and that's really not good for your health. So intermittent fasting and protein cycling, which is basically eating meat every other day instead of every day can dramatically lower your grocery bill. It can actually enhance your health and it can, um, you know, limit the amount of times you actually have to go to the store. And another thing I'll, I'll add to that is that when you buy fresh fruits and vegetables, a lot of what people are worried about is wasting them. And I'm telling you, I have, we, we bought a bunch of fruits and vegetables and we've only wasted maybe a head of lettuce, maybe two heads of lettuce in the last two weeks. And, and the reason why we haven't wasted it is because what I do is I take a plastic bag and a paper towel and I wrap the lettuce and I wrap the greens in these and I put them in the bag and make a little greenhouse. I do the same thing with peppers or zucchinis and you put them in the crisper drawer and they stay a lot nicer. And I also do, I also take like kale or fresh, fresh herbs and I put them in a glass of water and I tent it sometimes with, um, and like I do so with asparagus too. And I tent it with um, a little plastic. And yes, it, it, of course, using plastic is not great for the environment, but right now it's about living at home and surviving and having a sense of normalcy and then not necessarily having to completely depend on packaged foods or canned foods right now. So um, you can also freeze things if you think they're about to go bad. You can freeze kale and spinach pretty easily. Throw those into smoothies, throw those, throw those into stir fries or soups. Um, but really trying to think intelligently about your purchases so that you don't have to go to the store as often as you think. And you can maintain um, the quality of the produce that you're consuming so that it lasts longer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, another question that I got um and this is one of the more common questions. So I've gotten this actually a few times. Jess from Lindenhurst, New York asked, when someone gets COVID-19, can they get infected again after the virus passes? So I have read somewhere recently that there are people in Wuhan who were tested, who were positive, and then they got tested again and they, they were, and the thing is, I think it depends on the type of test that they're, that they're doing. But generally speaking, I would be, I mean, typically when you get infected with the virus, that's, that's the infection, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I would have to read a bit more to find out if it's possible to like get a double infection. I think it's far more likely that you end up with the flu on top of it versus like a different virus versus the same virus twice. Um, that's usually how things work. But again, this is like a novel virus, so I don't know necessarily. Um, I think it's also worth like touching on that testing. There's, there's a couple types of tests right now. There's the um, nasal swab test, that's a PCR test that's based on viral DNA or RNA, I believe. And then there's the antibody test. And so typically the, the DNA and viral load starts showing up earliest and then the antibodies start showing up later. So you would imagine if a person's starting to develop an antibody response um, that their body has now developed some immunity to this infection. So it's very much um, a good question. I wish I had a full answer, but that's what, that's what I got right now. Have you been following the, the research now where they're using the plasma from people who have seemingly recovered from the virus? Uh, I think it's in there. They've fast tracked it to clinical trial to see if it yeah. can uh, provide some kind of immune support for um, against a, a new challenge, a new viral challenge. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right? So if you're if your plasma contains antibodies and antibodies are these these really cool molecules that the B cells um, produce. And what they do is they um, they attach to antigens and it's kind of like a lock and key. And it's like, oh, I got you, I know what you are. And so you, it's basically tagging the virus to be, um, to be attacked by the white cells. 
So that would make a lot of sense to me, honestly. So I, I hope that works. One question that I had, um, so there's a lot of talk now about uh, people who are on ACE inhibitors, um, mm-hmm. as well as NSAID drugs like ibuprofen. Um, yep. Some are starting to recommend for people you know, in need of pain relief, acetaminophen mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. instead of like NSAIDs. What is the research telling us now on ACE inhibitors? First of all, what are ACE inhibitors? Because I'm, I'm imagining a so, ton of people yeah. are on them. ACE inhibitors, like for example, my mom takes them um, for high blood pressure. Mm. And so it works on this thing called the renin angiotensin system. And it's it basically helps reduce um, blood pressure by helping you pee out more fluids. And the problem is, is that people who are on ACE inhibitors tend to oftentimes get this annoying chronic cough because it does affect um, lung function. So the idea there is that if you're on ACE inhibitors, it seems like some of the data that's coming out says that you might have more severe symptoms. So I told my mom this because my parents are crazy and they're driving to Florida right now because they want to go to their Florida house. And I'm like, you guys, you do realize you're at higher risk, right? And they're like, yeah, whatever, we're willing to take the risk. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, please don't get sick. I would really prefer if you didn't go into the hospital. Um, But, you know, some people just don't realize that they have these little markers that are higher risk. And, you know, NSAIDs are super common. And one of the biggest problems with NSAIDs, people don't realize, is that they can affect your, um, the, the mucosal lining of your gut. And that mucosal lining of your gut from your mouth to your butt is basically where a lot of your immune system lies. Because your immune system comes out of that mucosa and it starts grabbing antigens, it starts grabbing things from the outside and starts taking them in to the immunity, to the immune cells and saying, look what I found. And so um, when you damage the mucosal lining of the body, you can actually, you know, certainly have an impaired immune system. So I oftentimes tell people who are taking NSAIDs regularly, like, you're never going to have full optimal health if you're taking an NSAID every day. So, you know, it's, it's definitely not recommended, at least the research for COVID that comes out, like on top of what we already know about NSAIDs suggests that you're going to have um, worse symptoms and a higher risk of getting hospitalized. So no NSAIDs, if you have to take an antipyretic, which is a fever reducer, take Tylenol, but remember that the body's natural defense against an infection is to raise its temperature because that deactivates a lot of the enzymes that the viruses produce. So you know, and, and, and bacteria as well. So like, I I personally think that unless this fever is really, really high and you're really, really uncomfortable, like let your body be a little feverish because heat kills viruses. That's why it's so important to go outside and get sunlight because you want that infrared heat on your body. And if you have a sauna, please do a sauna as much as you can. Um, I know you just got one installed. We just got one installed. We are so blessed right now to have these. But if you don't have one, um, you know, other options for heat are things like the Biomat or the Inframat. You can get those on Amazon. They're definitely not cheap, but they're a great surrogate for um, having a sauna at home. So yeah, like definitely try to avoid NSAIDs and try to try to naturally raise your own heat in your body to help fight off infections. Yeah, one of the one of the other issues with the ACE inhibitors is that they and you know, non medical expert here, but um, they seem to be able to upregulate this ACE2 receptor, mm-hmm. which is what yeah. the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually is able to bind to um, right. and is what leads to infection. And so I know that, yep. that experts are not, if you take these kinds of drugs on the recommendation of a doctor, they're not uh, recommending to stop taking the drugs. But what is the, I mean, is there any new data that you might be able to share, any, any sort of thinking there? 
Well, I mean, the same argument people are making for vitamin D, People, there are some people who think that vitamin D can upregulate this receptor and increase the risk of getting infected. Mm. Infected. So I think it's honestly too, it's, it's really hard to say um, because the science is so new. But I think pretty, I personally am still taking vitamin D um, because I have a natural tendency to get low vitamin D levels because of my genetics. So for me, it's like, you got to keep in mind that you're also at risk for other infections right now, not just COVID. And I had friends who came down with the flu influenza B and they were sick in bed in Baja. And so it's like, don't forget that you also need to protect yourself against other infections. So I'm taking vitamin D because I know it keeps me from getting the cold and flu regularly. Now, whether or not it's setting me up for COVID, I, I think it's pretty hard to say right now, but there's also a lot of arguments for other um, supplements that may be, may be helpful for immunity in, in other cases, but not in this case. So you know, the, there's a lot of things that we're trying to decipher in a very short period of time. And that's what makes this so challenging. Yeah, you've actually, so you've done a deep dive into supplements and things that you're using to support your immune system. And this is, uh, we'd love to go into this a little bit. Um, I mean, we don't, there is no magic supplement that's going to prevent. There's no magic supplement. There's no magic supplement, but you have uncovered in your research some supplements uh, or nutrients or what have you that you think mm -hmm. are can be potentially helpful. So let's go into that a little bit. Yeah, so I read this paper on different nutraceuticals that I can we can link in the show notes. Um, I think that paper was written papers, by my, if I'm thinking of the, of the same paper, it was written by James DeNicolantonio, who's a friend of mine. He's a pharmacist. Yeah. yeah. Let me see if it's that same one. Um, but basically, there's a few things called um, COVID-19 M-PRO inhibitors. And as far as we know right now, quercetin, green tea, and turmeric seem to do this. Um, and also, apparently, quercetin um, inhibits reverse transcriptase in the protease of the virus. So the big one that I think most people should be really taking right now is quercetin. Hmm. Um, I usually recommend quercetin to people who have allergies and... Um, who usually with nettle is what I, rec I recommended for it. And I can't tell you the number of people who have suffered from seasonal allergies who I put on this one supplement called quercetin and nettle. And they're like, Molly, you've literally changed my life. Like I, my allergies are so much better. It's incredible. So, um, you know, the mechanism of action, that's, this is like, again, this is pretty new science. We've only seen this, this virus for a few months now, but um, quercetin and green tea and turmeric are supposed to be helpful for that. Um, some people are taking, um, you know, licorice because of the the active ingredient and in licorice is supposed to also be good for the virus. But one of the reasons why I'm not recommending everyone take licorice right now is because there's a lot of people with high blood pressure and it can be something that can raise your blood pressure. So just because like I don't want to make sweeping statements about things that people like are going to go out and read and, and take, I, I haven't necessarily recommended all my patients go on licorice. Um, if you are super burned out and you have, you know, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction, licorice is one of the best supplements for that, that syndrome. But um, I'm not necessarily saying everyone should take that. Um, another one that I'm taking, as I mentioned, is I'm taking vitamin D, but that's because I literally notice a difference in my health when I take it versus when I don't. And it's not just for preventing viral infections. I also take it for bone density. I take it for hormone health. So I really like that that supplement and I'm not going to stop that because a lot of people are telling me that it, you know, increases COVID risk. I think it's, it's important for other things and enough things that 
I'm not risking going low on it. Um, but the big one, the really the most safe and the most effective supplement I think we have is vitamin C. And so I actually have um, like four kinds of vitamin C right now, actually probably five. I have it from fruits and vegetables. I have it in a liposomal form from this brand called Quicksilver. I have it in this form called magnesium ascorbate. That is one of my favorite forms of magnesium because it basically is, a, is like a bound magnesium to an ascorbic acid. And it's talk about like getting the calm, energized feeling that you want from magnesium. It's just such a great, it's like a really cool form of magnesium that one of my friends introduced me to. So I put that in my um, my daily sort of phytonutrient elixir that I've been making out of greens powder, reds powder, and aminos, um, which I've also linked in. I Well, we can put this immune formula um, spreadsheet in the show notes possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, zinc is really good. Um, I'm taking, you know, around 30 milligrams a day. It seems like the coronavirus is susceptible to the viral inhibitory actions of zinc. Um, they say it's going to prevent its entry into cells and reduces its virulence. So I think it's a pretty good insurance policy. But remember, a lot of people who supplement with zinc don't realize that it's very easy to get copper in balance. So I, I weirdly am always testing my body like at least twice a year for my minerals and nutrients because I believe that just like if you were to test a garden for you know mineral status to grow healthier vegetables. Um, and to grow a more robust garden, you also want to test your body for your nutrient status. So whenever I measure my body, for some reason I have low copper. And so I take um, chlorophyll because it has a lot of copper in it as a way to balance the zinc. And I don't think a lot of people know that. So I've got friends at this company called Peak Performance and they sent me some of their chlorophyll and I've tried chloroxygen, but I really like the Peak Performance chlorophyll because it's got mint in it and it just tastes way better than the, the chloroxygen. Um, another one that you can consider is N-acetylcysteine and, um, there's apparently a a few randomized controlled trials that I found, um, NAC is, is, was it this, was it NAC or something else? I'm trying to think. Basically there's some evidence that it can shorten the duration of influenza by like two, by two to four days. So if it reduces influenza, there's a theory that maybe it can also reduce, um, COVID. I don't think there's enough science yet to prove this, but um, there are some people who think that it also helps with um, breaking up mucus in the lungs, potentially. Again, I'm not as strong on this one, but I am taking it also just for general detox because it increases glutathione. Um, and let's see here. I'm also taking um, a mushroom complex. So I love medicinal mushrooms and I'm taking like, there's this company called Malama mushrooms and I get their stuff from um, Hawaii. And it's for me, I take it because I like the way it tastes. They mix it with cacao and cinnamon, and I just love putting this in my coffee. I love putting it in teas. I just think it's the tastiest mushrooms that are out there. So I, I like it for the taste, but mushrooms have beta-glucan in them, and that is supposed to be um, helpful for improving immune function. Um, and let's see here. What else have I read? Um, there's, some, there's basically this idea that beta-glucan can amplify the dendritic cell activation, the dendritic cells are those cells I was telling you about that line your that are in the mucosal lining of your body, and they're like they've got little hands that go out and grab antigens, and then they present them to the immune system to to learn about what's up, what's going on outside. So um, they can be mildly immunostimulants as well, so they can actually stimulate your immune system a bit. So you got to definitely be careful if you have autoimmunity not to like over to, not to produce an overactivation response of your of your body. But generally speaking, I. I have found medicinal mushrooms to be just something that I take 
all year round because I really like them. So I take chaga, I take reishi, I take turkey tail. Um, and um, what else do we got around here? We've got a bunch of mushrooms. So I love mushrooms. And then I think the last one would be selenium. Um, the reason why I'm personally taking selenium is because I do measure um, my macronutrients periodically using this app called Chronometer. And it basically tells me everything that's in the food that I eat. And one of the things I just notice is a pattern in my diet is I'm not regularly getting optimal selenium levels. And so I take selenium on top of um, my, you know, normal stack because I tend to get deficient in it. And it's really, really a common deficiency and it's very important for, um, for immune health. So um, one of those things that we know is helpful for the flu, we don't necessarily know if it's helpful for COVID, but I think that deficiency is so common that it's worth, worth supplementing with. Yeah, I mean, but given that like a lot of these recommendations are fairly speculative, I mean, we don't want to like mis mislead the audience and they oh, can, I'm letting people know. Like, of course, in this, yeah, in this, the thing is, is like I'm not taking these because I think I am guaranteed to not get sick. I'm taking these because I think that it's going to provide me with the best possible insurance policy. Yeah, but there's no guarantees, and there's definitely like if you are struggling with money and it's a, it's a choice between food and supplements, please buy food, please yeah. buy whole foods, please spend your money on healthy meat and and healthy vegetables over supplements because supplements are just like the detailing of the car. You really want to make sure the gas is in the tank, and you want to make sure that the car is running and the, the engine's running smoothly, and you really don't want to just like spend all your money on detailing the car and like, you know, buying a more expensive, you know, um, insurance policy for the car. You want to make sure that the car runs smoothly. And that's what you do. That That's all about what you feed every day in your body. So, um, but here's, here's another thing I want to add is I, uh, we had a power outage here um, because LA has a ton of people and it was overloading the power systems. And so there was a morning here where like, we didn't have, I didn't want to open the fridge because I didn't want everything to get dethawed. And so I had a bunch of superfood powders that I used to make an elixir that I have now started to take just as an extra um, policy for days that I don't eat as many vegetables. So I'm taking a, a, what I'm calling a protein phytonutrient elixir that is a short, quick source of, of nutrients when you don't have access to the healthy fresh stuff or the frozen things. So it consists of an amino acid, um, powder, a green superfood powder, a red superfood powder. And then I've added a few other supplements that I like, including this thing called Montmorillonite. I can't pronounce it. Montmorillonite clay, because I'm really into detox right now and I'm living in a city known for having a lot of pollution. Um, I add that as magnesium powder and I add glutamine powder to it because glutamine is the primary fuel for immune cells and, and especially the ones in the gut and the mucosal lining of the gut. So I add that and I add it to a water bottle and I use it for exercise and recovery. So, you know, these are not necessary, but again, I'm, I'm very glad that I have them on hand in the event that there isn't access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. You know, I actually, one of the things that I made sure, made sure to stock up on is my favorite protein powder. Um, just to be able yeah. to have a good high quality protein source if all else fails, you know, you don't need to have that in the house, yeah. but, um, well, remember that your immune system, to make antibodies, you need protein. To make immune globulins, it's made, they're made of protein. So it's not, as, it's not something that you shouldn't have around, in fact. Like, especially because it may not, you know, maybe not everybody has an extra freezer to store extra meat in. And maybe you're a vegan and you don't eat a lot of meat. So you need to make sure you get a good, a good amount of protein. 
But again, like you don't have to get tons of protein. I think the bodybuilding protein regimens that people recommend for building muscle are like a little excessive. Um, you just want to make sure you're not getting deficient. Yeah. Um, so thank you. We just, I mean, that, that supplement was, uh, the supplement list was awesome. I also quercetin, I think it's cool to know that that was like the first supplement that you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. top sources of quercetin are onions and capers. So oh, awesome. Yeah. I have capers in the fridge. We got onions. Love that. Onions last and capers last forever. I got a big old jar of capers for tuna. Um, because we have a, a bunch of canned tuna here, which I know has mercury in it, but whatever. It's like, it's meat. <laughs> so um, I've been doing that. I love capers and tuna salad and capers are just overall, they're really delicious on tomatoes too. Um, I want to go back to questions from the audience. Uh, because yeah. we, don't, we don't have that much you know, time left. I want to be respectful of your time. But um, Laura from Mountain View, California asked, if my family has been in quarantine with no symptoms after two weeks and my elderly parents have done the same thing, will it be safe to visit them for Easter? I mean, if you're not exposed and it's been two weeks, which is the incubation period of the virus, it's pretty unlikely that you're sick with it. So um, I would say it's probably okay to go see them. But just, you know, like to me, it's just all about on that way over to go see them, are you are you going to get exposed in some way? So, you know, do the necessary precautions, bring your hand sanitizer, wash your hands a lot. Um, but if it's been two weeks, I kind of feel like you're probably not sick. Well, that's so that I mean, yeah, that kind of dovetail, dovetails into a, into something that I've been wondering about. It's like, I mean, the physical distancing, I think, is is important. But until when like if i'm if i've been super cautious which i have been which i you know urge everybody to be um and then you have just say your best friend or your your girlfriend or whatever has been also super cautious isolating you know in their own in their own in their own domiciles then is two weeks a reasonable point at which if you both don't have symptoms um can you get together for a one-on-one -on -one sort of interaction? I'm not talking about going, well, you know, going to the I beach. Can I tell you that I went and saw my friends recently in Venice and it was my friend's birthday and I drove over to her house and um, I didn't touch her. I didn't, we kept our distance. I brought her a birthday present. Um, I, we went, walked down the street and like, I don't drink by the way, very often, but it was her birthday. And so we got margaritas that were to go from a bar and we just walked around like sick with, with three to six feet in between us during the afternoon. And I'm telling you, I cannot tell. It was like the most fun I've ever had because <laughs> I just really wanted to see people. And so like, you can go see your friends, just don't hug them. Don't touch them. Keep your, like, like just do the elbow. You know, if you want to do like the, prayer motion like where you're like basically social etiquette's going to change so like you're not going to hug you're not going to touch you're not going to like shake hands you know and you know that's that's the way to do this right like go on walks one-on-one -on -one with people like there's no reason why if you've been home for two weeks and you haven't seen anybody because i just got a message on on instagram from someone who said you know wh wh what's the best way to handle isolation and loan indefinitely question mark and i said it shouldn't be indefinitely like there's no reason why if you haven't been interacting with anyone for two weeks that you can't go and go see someone go on a walk without touching them. Like to me that I think it's, I think it's really important, especially if you're noticing that your lack of connection with people is, is leading to some, you know, real high stress because you just really need to, you need some company. Like 
I'm not saying break quarantine and go do a, go have a party, but I am saying that if you know someone who's also been in your position and you guys really need some human contact, like it's probably going to do your immune system worse not to see someone than um, to go out and go on a walk in a sun, sunny day by yourself with like or with with one person. So I'm I personally think that we we need to start safely interacting if we know that we're not sick. Like at what at what point do you think it's going to be? Say, I mean, this is again speculative, perhaps, but like, at what point are we going to be able to like? Do you think we're going to be able to go back to like normalcy of like meeting up with our friends and you know giving hugs and you know like makeouts and um, things like that? You know, all the things that make life great. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think that what's going to happen is that like my parents, for example, you, my parents were you know at home by themselves in Illinois and it was cold. And they're like, screw it, we're going to Florida. <laughs> people are going to just start doing that. And I'm not recommending people do that per se, but I do think that there's going to be a point where people are like, okay, let's get real. Like, obviously, we're not supposed to go to a 50 person party right now or a conference, but nobody should be stuck in isolation for as long as we are stuck right now without any human contact. Like, that's not healthy because people are gonna start getting mental health breakdowns. Yeah. And like that, that's gonna kill people too, by the way. Suicide rates are really high. Hmm. So the last thing we need is people to have mental health breakdowns. So I think it's gonna have to be, we need, we need really good public health officials and epidemiologists and doctors to start coming out and talking about realistic human interaction right now because one of the core central tenets of health and according to the model that I have been following that I've, I've created for my course at Stanford on you know, health span extension is human connection is so important. So, 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 so important. And like, I don't know if you've ever experienced touch hunger, but if you haven't touched anybody in like a few weeks, like this happened to me when I lived in Mexico in college where I didn't touch anybody for like a few weeks because like my family went out of town and I was living alone. And I remember the first person who touched me, it was like, holy crap, like my skin felt like it was, it was just nuts. It was like, I just couldn't believe the pleasure I got from just having a, someone touch my arm, you know? So I think that there's a real human need and desire to have connection. And if you can't get a human, if you can't get a human contact right now, like what I've been doing is I've been going outside, taking my shoes off and grounding my feet in the earth and like touching trees and like touching nature just as a way to feel connected to the, the world around me and not so cooped up, you know? Yeah. So I think it's really important. I think human connection and I think connecting with nature. I mean, we're not allowed to go to parks right now because apparently people weren't following the distancing recommendations. But I do think it's like really, really important that people connect and people touch each other. I mean, is the is the is the thinking that we're going to have a vaccine at some point and then things are going to go back to the way it was or just with a flattening of the, trans um, of the transmission curve? I think it's going to be more of a flattening of the transition of the curve. And it's going to be um, basically like the goal is going to be to slow the number of mass outbreaks that are happening all at the same time. Yeah. That's the way I see this happening. So people in the absence of a, of a vaccine, everybody's going to get it. But ideally, we'll, sit, we'll have our, a hospital system that is capable of... Um, not going over capacity and tending to each individual case as it as it pops up, not all at once the way that it's happening currently. I mean, the real question though is, is everyone actually going to get it? Like, just like we've discovered with HIV and with malaria that there are certain people in the world who are immune to it, 
we're going to find that there's going to be certain people who are immune to COVID hmm. um, just because they have strong immune systems. And like the fact that like, for example, people with um, sickle cell anemia are highly immune. Like they, they don't get malaria the same way other people do. So it's very, very possible that there's going to, we're going to discover that there's certain people and maybe it's not going to be like a giant percentage of the population, but it is very possible that not everybody's going to get it. I think this idea that everyone is going to get it is like, it's possible, but we don't really know yet. We don't know yet. Yeah. You know, Alicia from Seattle, Washington asked, do we know if COVID-19 causes lung damage like other coronaviruses typically do? Like, do we know if there's any long-term consequences once you've gotten and perhaps recovered from COVID-19? Um, it definitely looks like that there's, um, for people who are at least hospitalized, it certainly, the, the, the really scary thing is that it does look like the people who are hospitalized or on ventilators do have lasting damage to their lungs. So to me, that is some of the concern I have of getting it is like, it does look like it damages um, the lungs. So the question is, is, is it permanent damage? I mean, our bodies are incredibly powerful at regenerating themselves. So I, I would ha be hard pressed to believe that there's, there's no ability to regenerate, you know, part of your lungs that get damaged. But again, like this is new. So it's hard to say because we don't know yet. And I think we're going to find out more and more. But it looks like the people who people who have to be hospitalized definitely have some residual lung damage. Very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So for now, people should basically just stay inside, um, continue mm -hmm. with the physical distancing. I like the term physical distancing mm -hmm. more than social distancing because you. Yeah. There's been there was an yeah. article that I retweeted. I forget where which publication it was in, but I feel like social distancing implies that you can't stay connected via other means. Oh yeah, and that's totally the opposite of what you should be doing. So, like, I've been doing Zoom meetings with people. I've been doing calls with a lot of friends. I've been talking to my family. I've been taking online courses. I've been joining group calls and like group workout sessions. Like, you sh you you can interact with people, and you should interact with people. And socially, like, I've I, I'm interacting with with more friends and family right now than I normally would if it wasn't for this this situation. So, in fact, like. I think that it's very possible that you can actually enhance your relationships right now because a lot of people don't call their parents regularly or don't call their friends regularly. And, you know, we need, we need to make this a better, a bigger part of our lives. And in fact, I think one of the biggest problems with our country is just the, the, the breakdown of families and communities. And I think one of the byproducts of that, of the, that breakdown is increasing mental health disturbances and increasing suicide rates. So if there's anything we can learn from this experience is that, we are now given this beautiful opportunity to actually enhance our health and our human relationships through keeping in better touch with people that we love and trust. Couldn't agree more. Um, well, we're at the one hour mark. I mean, is there anything else that we can cover that you think would be of value to my to my listeners? I mean, we've we've covered a lot of different topics. We've ping ponged from sure, you know, sure, from, from supplements. There's just two things I think. Yeah, I would add um, the big one is a lot of you guys are working at home. And every single time that I see an article online about how to have etiquette while working at home, I see people that are sitting at desks. And I don't think this is very commonly spread out yet, but like right now as I'm doing this podcast, I am standing and I, I have one, two, three, four, five books that are enabling me to have my computer at eye level. And I do this for all day when I work. Like I really rarely sit because sitting literally is the new stand, it's the new smoking. 
And it, it's basically like keeping your car in the garage on idle. It's really bad for your mitochondria. And so you really don't want to sit all day long, like really, really try to build this new habit of standing at work instead of sitting at work. And it takes a little bit of learning and it's a little uncomfortable in the beginning. But once you get the hang of it, you will it will actually improve your health. And one of the things that it does is it it um like this, this there's a there's a type of enzyme that digests fat called lipoprotein lipase. And that actually turns off when you sit and turns on when you stand. So you can actually burn more calories and burn more fat just by standing. And so it's just better for your metabolism and it actually just really will enhance your health. So like I try to learn how to stand in, instead of sit, build your own standing desk, buy a standing desk on Amazon, just like stop sitting all day long because this is like, we are now entering a new phase of work where everybody is um, out is working remotely. And because of that, I think one of the biggest problems is that people aren't moving around the office anymore. And so they're not getting the movement that they were getting in the past from just moving around at work. So I really recommend that everyone learns to stand. Um, and the other thing I would say is if you haven't learned yet, really try to learn how to meditate. And I spent, um, I spent since last September, I did three meditation retreats and I started meditating really, really consistently. And um, I have to admit that meditation has prepared me for this epidemic more than anything else I've ever done um, because it has given me the ability to sit with myself and sit with uncomfortable feelings and sit with uncomfortable emotions and be cool with whatever comes up. And that is a superpower. If you can learn how to fast, if you can learn how to exercise, and if you can learn how to meditate, these three things are free. And these three things will enhance your health more than almost anything else besides probably what you eat. So, and in your relationships. So like learn to do these three things because these are going to make you live as long as possible without disease and help you maintain psychological resilience in the face of um, what's happening in the world right now. And part of the reason why I'm so passionate about exercise, about fasting and about med meditation is because all of these things can be really uncomfortable, but getting comfortable with discomfort is how you become a superhero. It's how you become more resilient and more strong and more resourced and able to handle crisis and in, 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 with a sense of calm instead of a sense of panic. And to me, like all the work that I'm doing in this in this space and all the work that I've done with my patients and help them prepare, I can't tell you the number of patients that are telling me just how resourced they feel because they have these skills. And so, you know, now is now is the time to learn how to do this because you have the time to <laughs> you've got way more time than ever. So learn how to do these 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 major skills, learn how to cook at home, learn how to talk to your family and your friends more regularly. And all these things are going to maintain and enhance your health um, beyond just this period of time that we're dealing with right now. It's so important. I mean, the, me the mental health aspect of things is not being t discussed on the news. No, um, no. At all, you know. And, uh, and I think it's so important, like the, the, the loneliness factor, as you mentioned, um, and the social isolation, I think is going to be really hard for a lot of people. And then couple that with the financial stress, obviously, mm -hmm. that people are experiencing on a widespread scale due to the, you know, reduction in, in, in jobs and the, you know, the stock market dip uh, or crash or, you know, however you want to describe it. So I think that this is something that is like really not being um, tended to uh, mm -hmm. by, by the authorities and by the media. And, um, and yeah. it's, it's an important and it issue. may have bigger consequences, you yeah. know, like they it may, we, we may be seeing a giant epidemic of mental health dysfunction following this. So like we have to do what's in our power to maintain our health and our resilience, because frankly, the healthcare system isn't going to do it for you. And that's what this is teaching us is that the healthcare system 
and I'm gonna put, I'm just gonna, this is probably my last thing I'll say, is a healthcare system is designed to bill and code for disease. It's a sickness billing complex. It's not a system for creating health. It doesn't help you adapt and self-manage. It helps you fight fires and deal with emergencies and handle trauma, um, like traumatic injuries really, really well. But it's not gonna build your energy systems. It's not gonna feed you healthy food. It's not going to teach you how to exercise. It's not gonna teach you how to meditate. It's not gonna teach you how to fast. And all these things are what actually builds health. So focus on your own inner resources and you know, like there, I'm, I'm going to plug my friend's um, meditation course that I'm starting on um, April 1st called the Finders Course. It's by Jeffrey Martin. He and he uh, and Nicole Bradford um, are both um, colleagues of mine at Stanford, and they developed this this online course that is really powerful, and it is probably one of the most transformative things you can do for your health is learn how to meditate. But again, if you're not, um, if your mental health is already impaired. Meditation is, you got to be careful with it because if you have OCD, if you have um, anxiety, sometimes meditation can make things worse. So talk to your mental health professional before you embark in any meditation course. But if you are super healthy, super resourced, and you're ready to take your meditation to the next level, sign up for the Finders course and take it with me. Um, or just download Calm or Headspace or one of the other apps and start slow and then titrate up to a level you're comfortable with. But learning how to be uncomfortable is actually a superpower and you can do it. You can do it. Well, Molly, I uh, appreciate your time. And um, this was really enlightening. I'm sure that a lot of my listeners are, you know, have gotten real value from, from this. So thanks for jumping on, on such short notice. Um, I'm bummed that we didn't get to do that. Uh, the South by Southwest live taping. But I know. Maybe, yeah, uh, I know. Maybe, maybe next year. Maybe next year, but also um, have everyone find me on uh, Instagram at drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-Y.co, um, because that's the best way to contact me and keep up with what I'm doing. I'll probably do some Instagram live later, later to do dinner because people keep on asking me for recipes and I want to show them what I'm making. So um, keep in touch with me. I'd love to hear from all of you. And I just want to thank you, Max, for letting me do this podcast with you. I super admire your work and I cannot wait to read your new book. Oh man, you're awesome. Well, thank you so much. To all you guys out there, please uh, share this important episode of The Genius Life, this bonus COVID-19 focused episode by uh, taking a screen grab, posting it up on your Instagram stories, share it with your friends and loved ones. That would mean the world to me and it would do a world of good for them. This information so badly needs to get out there. And uh, yeah, I will catch you on the next episode of The Genius Life. Peace. Peace.